Well, we're returning again to the great text of Ephesians 4, specifically 4.11. This verse is so good that we're taking two full sermons to make our way through it. I believe that Ephesians 4.11-16 are truly foundational for our church and for a correct understanding of the function of the church. Therefore, we are taking our time to move through them. Last week, we looked in part one of verse chapter 4, verse 11. We looked at the church's foundation, the apostles and the prophets. This morning, we'll look at the second part of the verse, the framing of the church, which describes the evangelists and the pastors and teachers. As we begin our study this morning, you might be asking, you might ask why we are studying the foundation and the function of the church. What does this have to do with us? Why don't you preach about the pandemic or maybe social unrest? Uh, A couple of weeks ago, I talked to a gentleman who was deeply troubled that all all his church talks about is about being an an American and their Second Amendment rights. That's all that they seem to discuss. In other churches, they constantly discuss things like woke theology. You know, they talk about hip stuff. Things that matter to our generation, or at least they think it does. Here at Grace Bible Church, Gainesville, we simply and unapologetically preach and teach the Bible. We open God's Word, and we read God's Word, and we explain God's Word. And just like the, just like the, the instructions on the bottle of shampoo, we rinse, repeat, lather, rinse, repeat. Lather, rinse, repeat. You get the picture. Here at GBC, we are committed to the verse-by-verse exposition of Scripture. As for the relevance of our current text, I want to remind you that Christ's promise to build His church is not some far-off promise that He gave 2,000 years ago. We take the time to study this promise, to study the foundation of the church, because it has profound, profound implications to the church today, dare I say, to Grace Bible Church Gainesville. Lest we forget, brethren, lest we forget that Christ is actively shepherding His church even now. J.I. Packer says this, he says, God has not abandoned us any more than He abandoned Job. He never abandons anyone on whom He has set His love, nor does Christ, the Good Shepherd, ever lose track of His sheep. End quote. Now, have you ever wondered why If you've ever wondered why teaching and preaching is so central to the church's mission and even our survival, I think you'll begin to see uh, that answer in this verse, verse 11, especially the rest of the section, verses 11 through 16. So let us pray for God's leading as we start this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning again and praise you for your goodness to us. Pray that you would be with the preacher this morning. I pray that it would not be his own thoughts, his own ideas that he preaches, but it would be preaching of your word and explaining of your word. Please guide me this morning, Lord. May I decrease as you increase. In Christ's name, amen. Well, this past week, the the Lord has repeatedly brought to my mind one of the more intriguing and tragic stories of the Old Testament. After God miraculously brought the Israelites out of Egypt, He began to prepare them for entrance into the Promised Land. But they proved to be disobedient to the Lord despite all that He had done. And In Numbers 13, you can turn there if you want, Israel's defiance climaxes in a very unexpected way. The Lord told Moses, He says, Send out for yourself men so that they may spy out the land of Canaan which I'm going to give to the sons of Israel. You shall send a man from each of their father's tribes, every one, of, every one a leader among them. So Moses, of course, obeyed the Lord, and he sent out leaders, including Caleb and Joshua. In Numbers 13, verse 17, Moses instructed the men to go up to the Negev and go up into the hill country. And if you know Israel, you understand what he's talking about. And he says, see what the land is like and whether the people who live in it are strong or weak, or few or many, and whether the land they live in is good or bad, whether the cities that they inhabit are like camps or fortified cities, whether the land is rich or poor, or whether there are forests in it. 
And be brave. That's, that's a, this is the important point. And be brave. And bring back some of the fruit of the land. So these men, these spies, they went up and investigated the land. And according to Numbers 13, 23, they were able to bring back some of the produce of that land, including grapes and pomegranates and figs. They, they actually spent a total of 40 days in the land. And Numbers 13, 26, they reported back to Moses and Aaron and the whole community and showed them the fruit of the land. And amazingly, in, in 1327, they told Moses, we went to the land you sent us, and, they, and that it, was, it's a, it is a, plant, a land that is flowing with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. It is indeed a land flowing with milk and honey. In other words, this land was all that God had promised. This land was everything that God had promised. Therefore, they said, we need to go take it in the strength of the Lord and be brave. But that's not what they really said, is it? They actually said the land is good, but the, inhab the inhabitants are strong and the cities are fortified and very large. And moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there along with a bunch of other bad people. You see, the spies responded with fear and disbelief. But there were a couple of brave men among them, right? Many of you know the story. In 1330, Caleb said, let us go up and occupy the land. For we are well able to conquer it. But the men who had gone up with him said, no, 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 whoa, whoa, we can't go up against these people because they're stronger than we are. Numbers 1332, they continued by presenting the people with a discouraging report of, what, of the land that they had investigated. They said the land that we passed through to investigate is a land that devours its inhabitants. All the people with there are of great stature. We even saw the Nephilim there. These are the descendants of Anak who came from the Nephilim. We seemed like grasshoppers, both to ourselves and to them. They could just stomp us like grasshoppers. Now, after this report, the Israelites responded in, in weeping, and they murmured against Moses and Aaron. They wanted to return to Egypt. Oh, let us return to Egypt. We're so great there in Egypt. Pharaoh wouldn't even give us our straw to make bricks, would he? In 14.7, Joshua, Joshua and Caleb told them, the land which we investigated is an is a exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, then He will bring us into this land and He will give it to us as a land flowing with milk and honey. And he says, they say this in 14.9, Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land for they are bred for us. Their protection has turned aside from them. The Lord is with us. Do not fear. Yahweh is with us. But as they heard these words, unfortunately, the people responded by wanting to stone Joshua and Caleb. But the glory of the Lord appeared to the Israelites, and he warned what, what he was about to do. He's about to disinherit them. But Moses pleaded with Yahweh, and Yahweh ultimately forgave them, but there were still grave consequences for their disbelief. In verse 9, sorry, verse 29, chapter 14, verse 29, it says, Your dead bodies will fall in this wilderness. All of those, all those of you who are, who are numbered according to your full number from 20 years old and upward who have murmured against me, your bodies will fall dead. You will by no means enter the land which I swore to settle at you. And the only exceptions of, to, this, to these words are going to be Caleb and Joshua who were brave men. 1431, But I will bring in your little ones, whom you said would become victims of the war. They will enjoy the land you have despised, but as for you, your dead bodies will fall in this wilderness, and your children will wander in the wilderness for 40 years and suffer for your unfaithfulness. Do you know what most displeased the Lord? Their disbelief. 
their disbelief, their complete lack of trust for God. Now, we might be tempted to look at them and say, how could they? How could they disbelieve all that God had promised? Didn't He miraculously deliver them from the hand of Pharaoh? He sent the plagues upon Egypt and their king. He divided the waters and He brought them through on the the dry land. Would He not continue to provide? How could you forget? Yet, They grumbled and refused to believe even when they saw the goodness of the promised land. But beloved, we shouldn't be so quick to judge, should we? As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 11, Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the world or the ends of the ages have come. Then he says this in verse 12, this is 1 Corinthians 10, 12. He says this, Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not, what? Fall. So how do you think we would respond in the same situation? How are we responding in our current situation? Do you believe that Christ will not forsake us amid all the social unrest? Do you still believe that the gospel is the only answer to our culture's problems? Do you believe that Christ continues to build His church despite COVID? Are you fearful of all that we see or all that you see in our culture? Do you doubt that God really can cause all things to work together for good to those who love Him, to those who are called according to His purpose? Even 2020. Do you hear Jesus' promise that He'll build His church and have your doubts that this applies today? Well, this brings us to our text this morning. You might be asking, what does this have to do with the text in Ephesians 4.11? Well, I'm glad you asked. We've studied Paul's purpose for writing this letter. He wrote to encourage the church at Ephesus to continue with the ministry of the gospel, even though he himself had been imprisoned for five years at the time of writing this letter. In other words, with the apostle Paul in jail, many must have doubted the true relevance of Christ's plan. See the the parallel? See the disbelief? You see, we still struggle with disbelief. Some 2,000 years later, I'm sure that there are those who struggle. I know that there are those who struggle with Christ's plan to build His church and how it's relevant today. In Paul's day, there must have been great dissonance between Paul's message of the gospel and Paul's current condition as he writes this letter. Yet Paul knew and he understood the strategic importance of the church at Ephesus. So he urged them. He urged them to press forward in ministry, the ministry of the gospel. He urged them to keep the faith. He urged them to consider God's amazing promises, which were all true despite Paul's suffering. Perhaps even because, I mean, the fact that Paul was suffering showed that God's amazing promises were all true. And after explaining those promises of God in chapters 1 and 2, Paul exhorted the church to realize that God is able to do far more abundantly beyond. Think of those, far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us. That's the promise. And the question is, and the question for the church, and the question for the church at Ephesus, and the the question for Grace Bible Church of Gainesville is, do we believe that promise? Do we believe that Christ is still building His church? Do we believe that God will do uh, far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think? Then, So Paul was urging them to press forward, but if they were to press forward for the sake of the gospel, they had to be united in doing so. And that brings us to chapter 4. Therefore Paul pleaded with them to walk the worthy walk. 
Now, we should understand that when Paul refers to our Christian walk, he's referring to how we live our lives. He's referring to the entirety of the actions that, we, that make up our lives. And in Ephesians 4-6, through 6, there are a series of commands which describe the worthy walk. In our current section, starting at verse 1, he gives the overarching description of the Christian's walk. It is a walk, first, of humility and gentleness. It is a walk, secondly, of patience, tolerance, and love. And it's a walk, thirdly, of unity. But if we are to walk in unity, what about the diversity which exists in the body of Christ? And so Paul begins in verse 7, he begins to to give that answer as he turns to discuss the gifts of the Spirit. In verse 7, he says that these gifts are measured out to each of us by God, specifically Christ. And in verse 7 through 10, he uses Psalm 68 to explain that Jesus has won the right to give these gifts to uh, the people of God by suffering and dying on the cross. But let's not forget that he was raised on the third day only to, to ascend to the right hand of the Father in the heavenlies. Ascend in power, showing that he had defeated sin and death. And he, would, he was above, far above all rulers and authorities must remember that just before Christ ascended, He told the disciples that they would receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon them. That's in Acts 1.8. Friends, it is by the power of the Holy Spirit that these people were able to accomplish anything. And nothing has changed. We can't accomplish anything of true value outside of the power of God working through us through the gifts of the Spirit. Acts 1.8 goes on to say, And you shall be witnesses both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. <clears throat> Beloved, this verse describes the growth of the church from its inception all the way to the, to the end of the church age. And we have to ask the question, how will, how will Christ accomplish this task? The general answer is through the power of the Holy Spirit. But our current section gives a more specific answer to this question. And this brings us back to verse 11. Let me read uh, chapter 4, Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. Follow along as I read. Starting in verse 11, And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints for the work of the service, to the building of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith, and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves, and carried about by every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into Him, who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. He starts out in verse 11, and he gave some as apostles and prophets. Now, last week we saw that Christ promised to build his church in Matthew 16, 18. Just like any good structure, the church is built on a solid foundation. In Ephesians 2, 20, Paul says that, the, that Christ has built the church on the foundation of the, the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. We saw that the apostles were a specific group of men who laid the foundation of the church by giving the church first true doctrine. We see this in Acts 2.42. The church was devoting themselves to what? The apostles' teaching. They also gave revelation from God that ultimately became the New Testament. We, We talked about this in our Word of God series this past summer. But we believe this group, this group of apostles, big A apostles we called them, to be limited to the twelve apostles, minus Judas, plus Matthias, according to Acts 1. The apostle Paul was specially chosen by Jesus to be the the apostle to the Gentiles. So therefore, this group is limited to those 13 people. 
Then there are the New Testament prophets. Their main function seemed to be teaching and preaching and protecting the apostles' doctrine. You could think of their prophetic ministry as being transitional. They transitioned the church from the first century, the period of the apostles, to the time which the church, was, had, which the church possessed the New Testament canon. You might think of these people as the guardians of the apostles' doctrine during this transition period. As such, they had a, a particularly, particularly important ministry in the life of the early church. Along with the apostles, the prophets, the New Testament prophets, formed the foundation of the church. And as with any solid foundation, once it's built, it's built. We don't continue to build build the foundation once it's completed. When the foundation is complete, it's done once and for all time. Beloved, the foundation of the church is the work of the apostles and prophets, which is represented in the completed canon of Scripture, especially the New Testament. Now this brings us to our second explanation of how Christ is building His church of Jesus' blueprint for building and unifying His church, He has provided special gifts for the building's framing, and that's the second part of verse 11. So looking at verse 11, it says, He gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. When a building is built, we always start with the foundation work. Have you ever noticed that when a building is built, it seems to take forever before you see much progress? You might drive by day after day and you see a little dirt pushed here and there, but you don't see much indication of a building. When I was a, a youth, when I was a youth, my father was a building contractor, and the building process always fascinated me. I guess that's why I became a civil engineer. But one day, the one day, you know, you, you have the building and, it's, and you're working on the foundation, and then one day the building just seems to pop up seemingly overnight. This is the, the building's framing. So, let's apply that to the church. Just think of the saints in Jerusalem in the ensuing years after Pentecost. It must have felt like the church would always be located in Jerusalem. But let's go back to, the, to Christ's command in Acts 1.8. He says that it won't just stay in Jerusalem, that it'll, it'll be spread throughout the whole earth. How could, it, how could it ever, though, make, if it's right there in Jerusalem, how could it ever have made any impact among the nations outside of Israel? But then what happened was the apostles began to spread out, and they began to preach the, the gospel to surrounding areas. Then Paul began to preach in Antioch, and after that the churches began to be planted in many diverse locations through the ministry of the apostles. Well, there happened to be another group another group of people which Christ used to build His church. We'll call these, we're calling these the framers, but the first of the framers is the evangelists. Now this term evangelist only occurs two other places in the New Testament. Philip in Acts 21 is called Philip the evangelist. And Timothy is called by Paul in 2 Timothy 4 or 5 to do the work of an evangelist. Now, I think the ministries of both men are instructive. They help us, I think, and I think I'll, I argue they help us understand the function of the evangelist. Now, let's first look at the Greek word translated evangelist. It means to one who preaches the good news. He proclaims the victory of the king. The verb form of this word would mean to be a herald of the good news, a herald of the gospel, a herald of, specifically for the word, uh, the message of the king. In this case, it's the message of the victory of Christ, the good news that he has defeated sin and death. So these people, these evangelists, were those who went around preaching the good news of the gospel. Their function bears some resemblance, if you will, to modern missionaries who bring the message of the gospel to those who haven't heard it. Now, I think that Philip's evangelistic ministry is instructive this way. In Acts chapter 8, you can turn there if you'd like. In Acts chapter 8, the, the church began to be scattered from Jerusalem and Judea because of persecution. And in Acts chapter 8, verse 4, it, it says... Therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the good news of the word. 
Philip, specifically Philip, went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. Here we see that Philip is preaching the good news, and he's preaching the gospel, he's proclaiming Christ in Samaria. This is the third leg, if you remember, of the fulfillment of Acts 1.8, that the gospel would be preached in Samaria. In Acts 8, it is Philip the evangelist who is preaching the good news of Christ. Now, I want to point out that the evangelist ministry seems to overlap with the apostles, right? The apostles also proclaim Christ in the same way. But here's what I want, to, I want you to understand. The grammar of 4.11, of Ephesians 4.11, supports this overlap. Now, I don't want to get too technical with you, but I think it's important for us to understand how Christ uses these gifts. There are two particles, and when I say particles, they're, they're just small words in the text that happen to not be translated. They're, they're, it's, it's, the first one is men, and the other one is de. Now, Men, in the Greek, could be translated on the one hand. On the one hand, God gave some as apostles. De could be translated on the other hand. So on the one hand, God gave some as prophets. On the other hand, God gave some as pro- uh, I'm sorry, apostles. And on the other hand, God gave some as prophets, evangelists, and pastors and teachers. Now, because of the construction of this, I would argue that the apostles were a special group of men who were equipped to give revelation like a prophet, to preach the good news like an evangelist, and shepherd and teach God's people similar to the ministry of the pastors and teachers. But as we've already seen, the the apostles are this incredibly special group of people that that they didn't get replicated. But parts of their ministry did in the form of other people. So during the time of the apostles, God seems to have used the evangelists to fill in the gaps of the apostles' ministry, preaching the gospel specifically. Similar to... He gave them the ability, similar to the apostles, He gave them the ability, in some cases, even to perform miracles to to affirm the truthfulness of the message. Look back at Acts 8, 6. So again, this is Philip. It says this, The crowds with one accord were giving attention to what was said by Philip as they heard and saw the signs which he was performing. For in the case of many who had unclean spirits, they were coming out of them, shouting with a loud voice, and, and many who had been paralyzed and lame were healed. So there was much rejoicing in that city. So it seems... So it seems that Philip and other evangelists during this time were given the ability to perform miracles. And they did so. They performed these miracles. God gave them the gift to do so to establish the validity of their ministry. Now, I would argue that this aspect of their ministry seems transitional. That there is no more need of this type of proof after the canon was established. Once the canon was established... The proof of this ministry became its fidelity and do, the doc, to the doctrine of the apostles, specifically in the New Testament. Does that make sense? So you had these men, they were going out and preaching the gospel, and it was being affirmed by the miracles that they were, that they were performing. But as time went on, their proof became the, the, uh, uh, the doctrine of the apostles as, as it represented in the, New, in the New Testament canon. Now, I think that Timothy's ministry is also very insightful. It helps us understand, I believe, the, the ministry of the evangelist. <clears throat> I would argue, and I would argue, that it helps us see its transition to the shepherds and teachers. Timothy was Paul's protege, who would later be the pastor of the church at Ephesus. In 2 Timothy 4.1, Paul knows that he and the other apostles are passing from the scene. Specifically, this is Paul's last words, last written words. Therefore, he charged Timothy to preach the word of God. This charge formed the central function of the shepherd. He is to preach the word, which includes reproving, rebuking, and exhorting with great patience and instruction. Again, this is the main duty of the pastor. 
Now, I would argue again that what we're seeing here is the passing of the torch. We're seeing the passing of the torch from Paul to Timothy, from the apostles to the early church fathers, from the foundational gifts to the more permanent gifts. Make sure you hold on to that. From the foundational gifts to the more permanent gifts. And in 4.5, Paul adds a few other commands, which I think are instructive. He says this. This is 2 Timothy 4.5. He says, But you, be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Now, I want us to focus on the phrase, do the work of an evangelist. Evidently, Paul knew that Timothy was not gifted in evangelism. If he were gifted, he wouldn't need to tell him to do the work, right? If he were gifted, he wouldn't be able to stop him from doing the work. He would just do it. So what does it mean then to do the work of an evangelist? Clearly, Paul calls Timothy to preach the good news of Christ to those who have not heard it. It would seem that the evangelist had moved on. They were going on to new places, leaving the people like Timothy at this church in order to shepherd and teach the people. So I would argue that this shows that these gifts begin to transition in nature as the church in a particular area began to mature. So where Philip, that is, preached the gospel accompanied by miracles, this doesn't seem to be the case after the church was established in a particular region. Generally, these miracles ceased altogether when the canon was formed, right? So this brings us to our final group of framers, the shepherds and the teachers. Now, I've already pointed out that there seems to be much overlap in the function of these gifts. I just argued that the apostles were a special group of men whose ministry seems to, encompassed, to have encompassed all these gifts. As such, there seems to be what I would consider a telescoping effect here. In, in other words, Paul's use of the, the grammar seems to allude to this effect. It seems that the gifts of apostleship and the New Testament prophet were used in the foundation of the church. That's clear from Scripture. But it also seems that the evangelist was used to take the gospel into areas where Christ had not previously been preached, which was part of, if you remember, the ministry of the apostles. But it isn't that the, that the evangelists had all of the gifts of the, or the, were like the apostles in any other way. They preached Christ, and they began to establish churches in new territory. So Christ endowed at least some of them, though, with the ability to do miracles, like we saw with Philip. So as a church was established in a particular area, the foundational gifts gave away to the more permanent gifts, especially the shepherds and teachers. Now let me give you an example. In 2 Timothy... 2 Timothy was written around 67 A.D. Therefore, the church had been established there for around 15 years or so at the time of 2 Timothy. Uh, the church was planted around 52 A.D., if you, uh, somewhere around that time during Paul's second missionary journey. So Ephesus, the church at Ephesus, was a more mature church at the time of Timothy's leadership. As such... As such, Paul exhorted Timothy to do what? To do the work of an evangelist. He wanted Timothy to continue this ministry of preaching the gospel in this area, which had always been the lifeblood of the church. Now that I've described the general process, I, I recognize that God worked differently and in, dif in different areas and situations. But let's take a step back now and let's describe specifically the ministry of the shepherds and teachers. One of the, the biggest conversations regarding this, this, uh, this gifts is whether or not they reside in one person or multiple persons. Many pastors take the title of pastor-teacher. The question is if this is what Paul meant in the text. So let's start by looking at or defining each gift. The Greek word translated pastor or shepherd has the idea of shepherd or sheep herder. Metaphorically, it came to be understood as one who is a shepherd or leader of the people. In John 10, Jesus referred to himself as the good shepherd. The writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 13.20 refers to Jesus as the great shepherd of the sheep. 
Peter portrayed Jesus as the shepherd and guardian of our souls in 1 Peter 2.25. Now, we can translate this word, like I said, pastor or shepherd, though the shepherd seems to better convey the gift. In 1 Peter 5.1, Peter calls for the elders to shepherd the church of God among you. He says, he says this, he says, as your fellow elder, this is First uh, Peter chapter five verse one. As your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God among you. And then he goes on to describe it, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. Not, nor yet as lording over those who allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And then he says this in verse 4. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. In this passage, we find that Christ is our chief shepherd to whom we are fully accountable. This harkens back to John chapter 21 when Christ himself charged Peter to shepherd his sheep. In 1 Peter, he, char- he charges the, the elders to shepherd the flock. You see the, you see the handoff there. You see Christ telling Peter to shepherd the sheep. Then you see Peter telling the elders to shepherd the flock of God. In Acts 20, 28, Paul tells the Ephesian elders, he says, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Then he says this, To shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. And then he goes on to describe it, to describe this ministry. He says, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come among you, not sparing the flock. And from among among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after them. He says this in verse 31, Therefore, be on alert, remembering that that night and day for a period of three years I did not cease to admonish each one of you with tears. Now, next week, we will take the time to look more in depth at the ministry of this gift as we study what it means to equip the saints in verse 12. But at this point today, we should recognize that Paul refers to the gift, uh, the gift of shepherd, not the office, not some office. Some commentators would state, have stated, that this is not a, uh, an established title when Paul writes this letter. As such, as such, one could have been a gifted shepherd without holding the official office title. Without, and, and also, one could now hold the title without having the gift. Now let's look at the second gift here the gift of teachers the gifting has to do with the gift of gifting has to do with instruction instruction including factual matters but also moral teaching jesus was called a a teacher by friend and foe and according to john 13:13 13, 13. he i'm sorry and, and according to john 13:13 13, 13, he he affirms that he is the teacher or is a teacher and lord in Matthew 7, 28 and 29, it says, When Jesus had finished preaching the Sermon on the Mount, the crowds were amazed at His teaching, for He was teaching them as one having authority, not as their scribes. So Christ's teaching carried incredible authority. This actually means that people can teach without authority. But that's not true teaching, is it? The writer G.K. Chesterton says it this way, a teacher who is not dogmatic is simply a teacher who is not teaching. But for the Christian, for the Christian, for the Christian teacher, the only authority that he has, the only authority that there is, comes from the Scripture. Therefore, the New Testament teacher must always base his teaching on the authority of the Bible. And in Paul's day, this would, include, would have included the Old Testament and the apostles' teacher, teaching, that is, and doctrine. <clears throat> so I think what we have to understand is that teachers during this time would have been in the same vein as the prophets and that they would have been teachers of the apostles' doctrine. 
They weren't teaching anything outside. What they were doing is they were affirming by teaching the people the doctrine of the church. And just as it is today, there were those who were clamoring to be teachers. In James chapter 3, James warns, Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as, as such we will incur a stricter judgment. This verse makes it even more important that our teaching, that the, the teaching in the church be based on Scripture and not on our, on our own imaginations. As teachers, we will incur a stricter judgment for leading people astray. And beloved, nothing gives me greater pause as I study the Word preparing to preach than knowing that I will be judged for the words that I say. Knowing that everything that I say it will be judged as to whether it is derived from the Word. I will be held accountable for leading people astray if I don't mind the purity of my teaching. And that's true for everyone who would call themselves a teacher. In 1 Timothy 4.16, Paul warns Timothy. He says this, Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will ensure salvation for both, you, for both yourself and for those who hear you. So teaching then becomes... Teaching the Lord's commands is at the center of the church's mission. In Matthew 28, 19, and 20, Jesus says this, Go therefore and make disciples. Go make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And he says in verse 20, he says, Teaching them, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. So, uh, the Greek word translated disciple it means a learner. It's based on the, the verb which means to learn. So there, therefore we are to teach we are to teach people once they become Christians, we're to baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, then we are to teach them the commands of the Lord. We are to teach them the apostles' doctrine found on the pages of, in the, of the canon. We look at, at this more next week, but we, we see that teaching is at the center of our equipping ministry. As I stated earlier, one of our ministry pillars, actually I didn't state it, I meant to, but one of our ministry pillars is the equipping of the saints. We use a Colossians 1.28 as the model for this ministry. Colossians 1.28 says this, We proclaim Him, admonishing and teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. So as we, as we started this section, I said that the most, that most discussion in this section revolves around whether or not Paul is referring to one person here or whether he's referring to multiple. So let me give an answer to that. Some would say that Paul's grammar shows that he is referencing one gift residing in one man. Others would say not so much. So here's my take. We must remember, we should remember, that Paul is discussing the gifts here. He's not discussing offices. Let that, let's think about that for a second and why that's important. As such, I believe he's talking about two distinct gifts. But I think there's a nuance here. I believe he is speaking of the shepherd who is also a teacher. So if you're going to be a shepherd, then you must also be a teacher. The elder must be what? Able to teach. But he's also talking about the teacher who, are, who may or may not also be a shepherd. You see the, you see the nuance. Harold Honer I've quoted him many times, commentator on Ephesians, says this, Pastoring and teaching are distinct. Stop right there, distinct. Distinct gifts. Although it could be said that all pastors should be teachers. So all pastors should be teachers. But not all teachers are pastors. End quote. I think that this understanding helps us make sense of Paul's grammar while upholding the nature of both gifts. 
as such, I would not say that it is wrong for one to refer to himself as pastor-teacher, because the shepherd should also be a teacher. But I don't think that the text makes this clear distinction. I will say that it is vital that these gifts, both of them, are functioning properly in the church. But because the church cannot be equipped and grow in Christ without these gifts being operational. John Calvin says this, When we see the Word of God purely preached and heard, and I would add taught, a church of God exists, even if it swarms with many, th- with many faults. End quote. The point he's making is, is that if we're minding our teaching, if we're shepherding our people, though there may be many faults in a church, the church exists. And I believe that to be true. Now, over these past two weeks, we've studied the gifts provided by Christ to build His church. We have seen the building's foundation, the apostles, the, the apostles' ministry, the fact that it's a, a specific ministry with specific men who were called to be apostles, and the prophets who came alongside the prophets or the, the apostles and, and helped uh, build the church with the apostles. They, they formed together, along with Christ being the cornerstone, they formed the foundation of the church. Then now we've seen the building, building's framing, the evangelists who went out and preached the gospel, and the shepherds and the teachers who uh, were more established, and the more established gifts of shepherding and teaching the apostles' doctrine. Next week we'll see the, God's purpose in giving these gifts. For now, I want to continue to focus on the beauty of Jesus' blueprint for His church. I want you to remember, this is the church of the living God. That Christ purchased this church with His own blood at the cross. He has won the right to build His church and to give spiritual gifts as He sees fit. And here in Ephesians 4, we see the beauty of what He has accomplished. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus, the Lord Jesus died for your sin. Your sins have been nailed to the cross. We can believe His promises. He has promised that He'll build His church. We can believe... Him when He promises to be to take us to be with Him, right? We can believe in a, a future bodily resurrection. Therefore, we can metaphorically join with Caleb as believers, Caleb and Joshua, in proclaiming the goodness and the faithfulness of Christ. But let, let me leave with this message. If you're here today and you don't know Christ if you don't know Him as your Lord and Savior, you have no part in these promises. Outside of Christ, there is no hope in this world. Friends, the Son of God came to dwell with us. He was called by John the Baptist, the perfect Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. He went to the cross to bear our sins. He died, but the grave couldn't hold Him. He was buried but rose victorious and is now seated in the heavenlies. And He calls for you to believe. He calls for you to believe. If you already call yourself a believer, He calls for you to live according to His grace. If you're here today and you don't know Him, I call you, I exhort you, I encourage you to turn to Him. He is this world's only hope. And I can sit here all day and I can talk about Christ building His church and how important that is, but it means nothing to you if you're outside of Christ. Don't let another day go by without turning to Him. Don't chance it. Don't. You're not promised tomorrow, are you? If anything that this 2020 has taught us, it's not that two hurricanes can merge 
in the Gulf. I hope, if, if, if anything, 2020 has taught us, it's that life is fleeting. Here today, gone tomorrow. Any one of us could catch COVID and be gone. Just like that. Like a vapor. It doesn't have to be COVID, does it? So if you're sitting here today and you don't know Christ, I urge you to turn to Him. I urge you to repent and follow Christ. And if you do know Him today, I urge you to live according to that knowledge. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You this morning. Praise You. As the song we sang, let the nations be glad. As we proclaim Your Gospel, the good news that we have been saved by Your grace, that it is not a result of anything that we have done, fully dependent upon the work of Christ on the cross. And if we believe Him today, if we believe that He went to the cross to die for our sins, if we believe that our sins have been nailed to the cross, we can have eternal life with Christ. But if we stay in our disbelief, When we die, we, first, we face eternal wrath. Oh, it's not popular today to speak of hell. It's not popular today to speak of an existence outside of Christ where we suffer eternally. But it's no less true. Lord, I pray for those who don't know you here today. I pray that you would turn them to yourself. Pray that they would turn to you, Lord, in saving faith. That they would turn to you not trusting their own works, but trusting in the finished work of Christ. Shed His blood. Endured your wrath. Thank you, Lord saving us. Thank you for saving me, though I don't deserve it. In Christ's name, amen.